We're going to read together this morning. Um, this is from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And I would ask you to read with me the verses that are in bold. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give, give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, and compassion, my compassion, grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for joining us this morning. Whether you're here for the first time for the, or for the umpteenth time, we're glad you're here with us. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are starting a new sermon series through the minor prophets that we're calling Divine Interventions. It's a fancy name, and I'll get to that in a moment. But today, as you heard already this morning, it's our family worship service, our, worship, our worship Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, which means we have kids in the room. Uh, thanks for being here with us as well, kids. Uh, it is also our potluck Sunday, and so which means uh, this room will be transformed again to a, a, a dining hall with uh, all sorts of good food. Uh, there's good food uh, and the smell of good food wafting from the back. So you are invited to stay and enjoy some time together, whether you brought something to eat today uh, or not. I uh, really invite all of you to come and stay and join us in that time together. Uh, thanks for joining us and being with us this Labor Day weekend. The Minor Prophets. The book of Hosea particularly. Hosea is a love story. But it's unlike any other love story that you've read or seen or heard. It kind of feels like, it comes off kind of like a scene from the movie Pretty Woman. You may know this movie, and I'm not plugging it here from the pulpit. If you haven't seen it, I would say watch it at your own risk. But it's a movie about a businessman, a wealthy businessman, played by Richard Gere, who in need of a date for several business and social events, hires an escort, played by Julia Roberts. From the red light district of Hollywood Boulevard, she poses as his girlfriend in these business functions, 
And over the course of the week, he falls in love. It's written like a modern-day fairy tale, a love story. But Hosea is not a romantic comedy. Let me share with you how Merriam-Webster defines romantic comedy. A light comic movie or other work whose plot focuses on the development of a romantic relationship. Hosea is not that. Hosea is quite the opposite. It's the opposite of light. If you've ever read through the book of Hosea, it's a dark and bleak and heavy story. It is not a light read. All of the minor prophets read very similar to this. There are 12 minor prophets. These are little books tucked away in the Old Testament, somewhere in the middle of the history books of the Old Testament, the first 17 books. And then the stories of Jesus, the ones we find in the New Testament, starting in the book of Matthew. Hosea is one of two minor prophets with 14 chapters, but most of them, eight of them in particular, are four chapters and shorter. And there's one that's only one chapter long. But they are called the minor prophets, 12 of them, and there are five other books called the major prophets. And for your information, the major are not more important and the minor less important. The major are longer and the minor prophetical books are shorter. You can read the book of Hosea, I think, in about 30 minutes or less. Kind of a, a read, which I don't think, again, is, is light, but heavy as you read through it. And if you're tr having trouble finding the book of Hosea this morning, that's okay. You're in good company. I will not be offended if you use the table of contents to find this short book. That's okay. But we will have the undertaking, uh, the great task of uh, this undertaking of covering 12 books in 12 weeks, the minor prophets. We feel like that's quite an endeavor. We're calling the sermon series a divine intervention. And again, if I could explain a little bit, not divine intervention in the sense that a deity intervenes in the affairs of humankind, the form of visions or miracles. We are not describing an event that appears to be guided by a greater force for some fortuitous event or well-timed coincidences that sometimes we chalk up to divine intervention or an act of God. No, not that kind of divine intervention. You know, we talk about intervention and in the ways that, uh, or we think of a divine intervention in the ways that, uh, you know, uh, when a loved one is caught in a web of bad habits kind of intervention that seems to be leading them down a, uh, a unhealthy downward spiral. So family and friends step in to intervene so that it doesn't lead to self-destruction. You know, those kinds of interventions. Perhaps you need some examples. Perhaps you need an intervention if your dad jokes are out of control and people need to tell you 
because you don't know it yourself. Or perhaps you need an intervention if your garage is full of stuff that you think you might need someday, and it only gets more and more full, you might need an intervention. Or you don't realize that you have unhealthy an unhealthy relationship with organization, like cleaning and organizing this garage that is full of stuff already. Or when you think about intervention, you think about wearing that college shirt, the one with all the holes and rips and strange places that you think is okay to wear in public. Or you think you may be in need of an intervention if you think it's okay to talk about all the ways that Daniel Yoon needs an intervention during a sermon. Those are all the struggles that I have. And all the ways that I think my, my kids hint, like, uh, you need to let these things go. We're talking about that kind of intervention. The kind of intervention that confronts the individual and says something like, we're not willing to be bystanders any longer. And they say, we made you an appointment and we'd like you to keep it. Those kinds of interventions. I was really tempted as I was preparing this message to Google uh, interventions gone wrong as I was preparing the sermon, uh, but you might be glad that I did not do it. But as I mentioned, it's that kind of intervention. The kind of intervention that we see in the book of Hosea. Hosea is a really dark book, and many of the minor prophets read this way. It all seems to be doom and gloom. The northern kingdoms of Israel and the southern kingdoms of Judah are living in some dark days. They are living under some evil kings. They had their share of good kings, but many were evil and did what was right in their own eyes. And so we see that uh, uh, there's this dark undercurrent uh, during this time of Hosea. Things like idol worship, the defiling of temple worship, there's corruption, there's lack of concern for social justice, there is disregard for spiritual heritage, there is a lack of faithfulness to God. There was always the constant threat of attack from neighboring nations like Assyria, neighbors to the north. And God would often say, place your trust in me and not in these nations. And yet Israel continued to run and make alliances. And so God raises a prophet, a prophet like Hosea, calling them to repent and return to the Lord. And it's in the midst of this historical setting that this book comes alive. And so we see a divine intervention. A God who steps in and intervenes for the benefit of Israel and Judah from harming and injuring themselves. That's how the prophets should be read. A God, for the sake of Israel's flourishing, intervenes on her behalf to save her from herself. But why a sermon on the minor prophets? One commentator, Mick Comiskey, says this, Where is the edification for a modern Christian in a dirge celebrating the, the downfall of an ancient city? How can the gloomy forecast of captivity for Israel and Judah lift the heart today? The minor prophets seem to be preoccupied with nations and events that have little relevance to today's uh, world. So why the prophets? Why Hosea? It's so unlike 1 John. 
where the message seems so simple, love one another. Well, friends, the minor prophets may not be as time-bound as we think. It has significant relevance for us as we read it. Let's go through it. The book of Hosea. Who is Hosea? Hosea is a prophet of the 8th century B.C. He was a prophet to both the northern kingdoms, the ten northern kingdoms in the, uh, the northern part of Israel and the two kingdoms in the south uh, called Judah. Uh, he was the one who spoke on behalf of God to these nations. Uh, we know that Hosea um, was a father to, to three. His wife's name was Gomer. We know about his father a little bit, just his name. But that's all we know. We know a little bit about Hosea from the first chapter and maybe the third. But other than that, very little is known about Hosea. What we do know, we know that Hosea was a man of deep moral conviction. We know that he was devoted. We know that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do, which leads him to marry a shady woman with a shady past, a woman with, a, with unreputable character. That's the story in a nutshell. God says to Hosea, marry a woman who will not be faithful to you. A woman who will not love you in return, but will love other men and be a father to her children. It's a strange request. God was asking Hosea to do a very difficult thing, but Hosea obeyed God anyway. And he married a woman named Gomer. Gomer had three children, Jezreel, the name of a city in which God would punish, Lo Ruhamah, which means uh, no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means no, not my people. And just like predicted, Gomer would not be faithful to Hosea, and she would often run away, and God would tell Hosea, go back and run after her, win her back. And so Hosea would find her and pay to get her back. Derek Kidner in his commentary says this on Hosea, on, uh, his, in his book, uh, Love to the Loveless. He writes this, it is the people you love who can hurt you the most. One can almost trace the degree of potential pain along a scale. He says, from the rebuff, which you hardly notice from a stranger, to the rather upsetting clash you may have with a friend, right to the stinging hurt of a jilting, the ache of a parent-child estrangement, or the most wounding of all, the betrayal of a marriage. Hosea is petitioned by God to do the unthinkable, to do that difficult task of marrying someone who will not be faithful to him and enter into this dysfunctional marriage. The words alone, when we read it, fail to convey the sharpness of the pain. You have to imagine it. You have to place yourself there to realize, again, the kind of pain that causes on someone who remains faithful in an unfaithful marriage. And so Hosea, heeding the words of God, enters this parable. He becomes the example. He becomes the illustration 
that God desires to convey. It's an agonizing task, and yet Hosea does what God asks and enters this marriage. And right from the onset, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the country itself has become nothing but a harlot by abandoning Yahweh. I mean, again, do you get the emphasis of the word and how often that word is used? And again, we can use words. Again, if you would, read the ESV, right? The version that we read through this morning. And read through chapter 1, it's, it's not words for, for young ears. It's a tough Tough book to read. We would never make our children watch a movie that wasn't appropriate. And again, the Bible is filled with such language that makes us squirm. We would not like to say those words in church, certainly not read them together. It makes us feel really uncomfortable. And the 14 chapters of Hosea, and if you've read them, it makes you squirm in your pants. It makes you feel really awkward. It's still so strange because, uh, and I've watched rated R movies before, and again, I don't squirm as much as I'm watching it with my children, right? I mean, it makes you squirm. And, and again, nothing like this should ever be written in the Bible, we think, because we read through this and go, it shouldn't be here. And that's the book of Hosea. I was looking for a passage that we could read together. I was thinking maybe we could read all 14 chapters here in service, but that might be my whole sermon, which I think you might think would be okay, which I might as well. But 14 chapters, and I landed upon chapter 11. It's the one bright spot in the 14 chapters. It's hard to read, it's hard to digest. Seems highly inappropriate for church. But take for yourself this unfaithful woman. And so you see the people of Israel, they heard this message. And again, it's not the first time. They had heard it, and they had heard it, and they had heard it again. When you read through the Old Testament, right, when we get to the minor prophets, this much of the Bible has already been Read, right? Already that much of the history of Israel had passed, and God had pronounced on Israel over and over again through the patriarchs of the Old Testament. When you read through the book of Genesis, starting from, from Adam and, and Abraham, all the way as we think about the words of Moses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, God is proclaiming again and again, return to the Lord. So, this is hardly the first time that Israel has heard this. They've heard the message. They were continually hearing the message to repent, but now God has set them, uh, has, uh, has them see it in real life, a real marriage. It's like uh, this particular book, particular message of God needed to be reenacted. It needed real figures, real players and characters who would play out this loving heart of God, the people of Israel. It's like it needed acting out with characters and a plot and a stage to convey its message. 
And, was, and what Hosea had to do was, in miniature, what God had done in giving his love to a partner with a history of a wandering eye. Israel, just in case you don't get it, here's a real-life illustration of the years I have poured out my covenant love to you. And how often I have pleaded with you to return to the Lord, and yet you have rejected. And so Hosea is given three children, two sons and a daughter, and an interesting name, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. We get the notion that perhaps the first is his. Again, when you read through chapter 1, it's interesting because if I can just point your eyes to that section in chapter 1, as he gives, as God gives our children to Hosea and to Gomer in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse uh, 3 of uh, chapter 1 says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. But you don't see that same language with Lo Ruhamha or Lo Ami, perhaps because they are the product of her unfaithfulness and how fitting the last name uh, the last child's name is lo ami not my people but it is a love story so profound not of a man named hosea and his wife gomer but of a love that illustrates how deep and how Great the loving care is of God. The twist of the book of Hosea is that it's about a God who declares his love for his people despite their unfaithfulness. As the hymn writer puts it, let thy goodness like a fetter find my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And what a fitting picture of Israel, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee, because Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And as we look at chapter 11 of Hosea, we not only see a faithful husband to his wife, but a loving father to his children. This chapter is one of the boldest, I think, in the Old Testament in exposing us to the mind and the heart of God in human terms. It's a chapter filled with great cost and deep anguish. And again, quoting Kidner, he writes, even when we speak of God as father, we may hesitate in case we read too much into the word. But our chief danger, he says, is reading too little from it, drawing our ideas either from an earthly father or of something else. And so here, by contrast, we are made to see God as a father rebuffed, 
torn between agonizing alternatives that may seem too human altogether. But this is the price of bringing home to us the fact that divine love is more, not less, ardent and vulnerable than ours. I have mentioned this before, so if you remember what I said, I, please forgive me, but I had mentioned that the shortest verse in the, in the New Testament, actually of the whole Bible, is these two words, Jesus wept. And I had mentioned that uh, Jesus wept, uh, how some scholars have said, well, there's the humanity of Jesus. There's the human kind, of the, the humanness of Jesus, that we see his emotions poured out and he cries in the death of his friend Lazarus. And again, Mary and Martha, uh, their, their sisters are there and Jesus weeps. And he's crying these, these tears of pain. And as we read this, we might uh, look at the, the, the person of Jesus and say, there's Jesus, the human. But what I think it's, it's meant to convey is the, the divinity of God, the godness of Jesus. That when we read it, we say, that's God. Because when we see God and he pours out his emotions in tears and in pain, and then we read the words of, of Matthew in chapter 13 that says they were lost like, with, uh, like, uh, like sheep without a shepherd, like orphans without parents. And he sees the divineness of a, of a God who longs for his children. And he says, and then again, we see again in, in these words of Jesus, the divineness, the, the heart of God that pours out his love and compassion on those he loves. The love of God. This is the nature of God's love. It is the real mind and the real heart of God in human terms. A real life illustration. And when we read Hebrews 11, again, the grace of God shines loudly. In the first words of chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. The nature of God's love, the same that we see when Jesus weeps, when, show, when he shows compassion, when he aches for those who are hurting, when he reaches out to the, to the outcasts, to the weak and to the hungry, to the poor and the marginalized. It is the heart of God, the real mind, the real heart of God in a real-life illustration. What a weeping and teary-eyed Jesus shows us is rather the divinity, the, the godness of Jesus. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with a cord of kindness, 
with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. In verses 1 through 4, we see the deep, tender, covenant relationship of love of God. If nothing else, when you hear those words, I hope you hear the tenderness in the language of the Father as he expresses himself to his son. It's a picture of a moment in time. If you remember, again, it, may, it takes us way back as well to the times of the Exodus. If you go back to the second book of the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible, we see God rescuing Israel from Egypt, from the land of enslavement and sin, and God rescues them by the hand of God into the promised land. And when you read that, you're supposed to feel affection. You're supposed to feel care. You're supposed to know that there's a commitment from God's, God's side, that there's a concern from God with regards to why you are to respond um, in repentance. The question I think the, the book of Hosea is asking is, why are you responding the way you are responding? It's a deep and abiding love that is being expressed and it's expressed so beautifully and vulnerably. And the, the prophet Hosea is asking the question, why are you responding this way when you have been shown nothing but compassion and love? And so God reminds Israel that he loved them and he called them. It's from the childhood. And now that language that he's, that he's using here is an imagery of loved and called. It's meant to remind us, not just for the people of Israel, but it's meant to remind us that it is God who chose us. It's God who has loved them. It's God who had called them and named them and adopted them and adopted them into, their fam into his family. That there was nothing, absolutely nothing in Israel that was appealing to God. And the only reason that God adopted and brought them out of slavery in Egypt was because of his covenant love that he had established with the forefathers. And that covenant was grounded in the electing love of God from before the foundation of the world. And you see, what, what Hosea shows us is, is that God does not or ever renegade on his promises. He remains faithful to his word, even when and even if Israel is unfaithful to him. So again, the question Why does Israel respond the way they are responding? For you see, packed in that question is that the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. The kindness of God should cause us to weep. It is his readiness to forgive that should blow us away because that's the kind of God he is. For you see, he never gives up even when we give up on him. That's the message of Hosea 11. You are my beloved children. You are part of my family. I called you out of Egypt. I gave you every blessing, and yet you still turn away from me. Your disobedience is what has caused you to suffer, but I still love you. I will not let you go. You are still my children, even when you disappoint me. And the question is, who wouldn't love a God like that? Who wouldn't serve a God like that? That's the gospel. 
Here's the gospel. The book of Hosea speaks to the love of God as well as his justice. There's both. In the backdrop of our negligence, our sin, our shortcomings, our waywardness, our wandering eye, our wayward heart, is his love. It speaks to the love of God as well as to his justice. The prophecies, the prophecies uh, in the backdrop of, of doom and gloom is, is rich with hope. You see, the gospel tells us that our sin is great, but that his grace is greater. The greatness of our sin versus the magnificence of his grace. Let me finish with this. At a Reformed church like ours, even when we read uh, other places of the Bible, that's not the New Testament, and we look backwards before the time of Christ, there are, there are um, the message of the scriptures has a way of pointing us forward to Christ, always. And it's, as you read through Hosea chapter 11, in some strange way, the prophet Hosea has us pointing forward to one who would come. Listen to this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. It's strange because those words are found right in the New Testament. Matthew looks at that Old Testament passage in the prophets, particularly the book of Hosea, and quotes right out of it in verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Again, this is uh, Jesus being born. And he said to him and said, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. What Hosea probably doesn't realize is that this is going to be the fulfillment of a, a greater son, a son who will be faithful to his father, a faithful one who will take our place in our unfaithfulness. You see, the gospel that we read in Matthew chapter 2 and again in Hosea chapter 11 is this. God says, do it. And we said, we can't. And so God said, fine, I'll do it for you. 
You see, because God demands perfection, and because we couldn't meet the standard of his perfection, God sent his son, who was the perfect sacrifice in our place. Because God demands payment for sin. And because we couldn't make the payments, God sent his son, who paid the price in full on our behalf. Like the one who demanded righteousness from us. But all we had to offer were filthy rags of our soil self-righteousness. So God sent his son who took our sin so that we might be clothed with his perfect righteousness. God demanded a scapegoat that could be rejected and sent away when Christ died, bearing our sins. The father turned his back on his own beloved son where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God demanded a bloody sacrifice for our sins, and we could not meet that demand, so he sent his son to die in our place, shedding his blood, paying the price, bearing our burden, offering himself as the final sacrifice for our sins. The book of Hosea is a love story. It's a love story about a God who loves us relentlessly. A God who pursues, a God who runs after. I know you have heard me say and share the story of the prodigal son, about a son who takes his father's inheritance and runs away and spends it all. And he comes back to his father with his tail between his legs, asking for forgiveness. He's rehearsed these lines in his head many times. And as he's walking back to his home, the father sees him in the distance. I think in some ways he hikes up his skirt and he runs. And I mentioned how awkward that is of an old man running. But have you ever looked at Luke 15 and have seen in contrast that while the father runs, there is no mention of a son running? You see, because I think Jesus paints this picture and it's the same one that Hosea tells in the Minor Prophets that God pursues us. Because he knew that we could not do it, he initiates running after us. Friends, you may have come today thinking, I'm not worthy, I, I've committed too many sins. Maybe you've come this morning thinking, uh, my life's a mess, uh, my life is in ruins. Uh, again, whatever baggage or, or hurts, or a weight that you've carried to this place, let that all go because God says, I, I receive you, I, I pursue after you, I, uh, I run after you. You don't run after me. Because all the running uh, doesn't ever reach God. So God, he, he initiates that, that running pursuit of us in that while we were yet sinners, as we read in our confession, Christ died for us.